Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards, I'll be your host again today. And today the episode is going to focus on the Battle of Harlaw. Now this is a an historical type of a episode, but in the process of telling you the story of the Battle of Harlaw, I'm going to include a lot of information about the clans who were involved. And there's some actually some pretty cool stories in here about your individual clans. It includes clans from both the Western Highlands and Isles, as well as lowland clans from the northeast of Scotland. So hopefully there's a little something in here for everybody. As we begin start talking about this battle, I've got to set the stage for why the Battle of Harlaw happened. First of all, it happened in 1411. Now this is at a time when the Lordship of the Isles was going strong, and I'm here to tell you I'm learning some cool things about the Lordship of the Isles in this book that I've been reading that I've mentioned in previous episodes called Kinship, Church, and Culture, Collected Essays and Studies by John W.M. Bannerman. He has a huge section in here on the Lord Lordship of the Isles. And the interesting thing about that for you all is that, well, okay, if you're a McDonald, then this directly ties into your family history, but there's also a lot of other clans who fell under the sphere of the Lordship of the Isles. Before I get into those, let me tell you how this, this battle kicks off and, and, why it, and why it even happened in the first place. Really, this is a, a competition between maybe two of the most powerful people in all of Scotland at this time. First of all, let me tell you about the Earldom of Ross, because that's what it was. It was a fight over the Earldom of Ross. Ross is a vast stretch of territory in the north, north of Scotland. Now, one thing that Bannerman mentions and talks a lot about is the kin-based society, which was, has really been interesting. If you listen to previous episodes of mine and some of the things that I've wondered about concerning the Scottish clans in the past, he answers a lot of that stuff in his book. But the kin-based society, you, you have the Earldom of Ross, and originally that was held by the Obiolans, which is interesting because you have this kindred who goes by an, the prefix of O, which typically is an Irish thing and not used as much in Scotland. But you do have the Obiolans, who the earls or who the clan Ross actually descend from them, and so do the MacTaggarts. If you've got either of those kindreds in your family tree, these Obiolan earls of Ross descend from them, and, and that we can make that a separate ex- episode. They go back to Ferker Mac MacTaggart, and he was quite the warrior in his time. But anyway, you have the earldom of Ross, but. After a while, it, it passes out of the Obiolan family into the Leslie family. Now, one thing that that Bannerman mentions here is, and this is an important detail here, is that the Leslies, let me, I'm going to quote from page 338. The Leslies were not entrenched as a kindred in their own right in Ross. That makes a difference. They, were, they, they did not have a presence there as a kindred. And in a kin-based society, that's a big deal. Anyway, the Leslies hold, at, at this time, the Earldom of Ross. You have William Leslie, who was the Earl of Ross, and he has two kids, Alexander and Mariotta. Alexander marries Isabel Stuart, the daughter of Robert Stuart, the Duke of Albany, who is 
the regent of Scotland while the up-and-coming king is still in his minority, or too young to start ruling on his own, by the way. So the regent was kind of the one who took control until the next monarch was old enough to reign. And by the way, this is once again, just reminding you that this is the early, early 1400s. So you have this regent of Scotland, his daughter marries Alexander Leslie, the next Earl of Ross. Alexander's sister, this is important, she marries Donal MacDonald, but he usually didn't go by his last name, he usually went by of the Isles. So she marries she marries Donal of the Isles, and that's kind of how I'll refer to him throughout the rest of the episode. So, and by the way, if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because it's like 5.30 a.m. right now, I wanted to wake up and record this podcast and get it knocked out before my day started so that I could release it earlier because I wanted to do this this last weekend and I didn't get to it end up being a little busy by that well why I got busy doesn't matter I guess so you have Marietta marries Donald of the Isles you have you have Alexander Leslie marries Isabel Stewart and Alexander and Isabel only have one kid her name's Euphemia and it looks like she has some birth defects. And, and as far as I could read, it was only physical birth defects. It was not anything that would impair her, but it would, you know, for making sound judgments and, and ruling as the, as the heiress, um, the, the female ruler of Ross. But poor Euphemia becomes a pawn in the struggle of two more powerful people. And I feel sorry for her. Anyway, she she looks at as neither as fit to to lead by neither Donald of the Isles nor by her grandfather Robert the Duke of Albany, Robert Stuart. Neither, neither one of them look at this as a viable option for the future of the Earldom of Ross. Which so now they're thinking of what's the next best option. Well, if you're Donald, he believes that the the inheritance of the Earldom would come through Marietta, who is the next of kin in lack of Euphemia's, in lack of any suitable husband for her in the future. And that's just how things work. I know that a lot of you will have huge problems with that, but that's the reality in, in the early 1400s in Scotland. And so if she doesn't have anybody to marry and she's not a suitable ruler herself, then if you're Donald of the Isles, you're the next best guy. And so he, he believed that he should have the Earldom of Ross. However... Robert Stuart, the Duke of Albany, he claims the earldom on behalf of his son John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan. So, if you, so Euphemia has her uncle Donald comp- competing for the throne, and her grandfather advocating his his son, her other uncle John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan. So that's how you have this these competing claims to the earldom of Ross. And once again, the earldom of Ross is huge. All right, and so. The, they can't figure it out, and so they're going to go to war over it. And it's, and it's Donald who initiates hostilities. All right, so let's talk about who's involved in this war. You have, on one side, with the, with the, from the Isles, on Donald's side, you can reasonably assume that every member of the Council of the Isles is in on this. You have, and, and let me tell you which clan specifically that would include. It would include all the MacDonald branches, and at this time specifically that means the branch of the Clan Ranald. 
you have the Dunnyveg branch, which later becomes Dunnyveg and the, and the Glens in the north of Ireland. That's the group of the McDonald's that established themselves in Northern Ireland. You have the McKeans of Ardemurkin, even though they're not going by the last name McDonald because of a break off the uh, ancestor of theirs named Yine, which is the Gaelic for John. So you have the McKeans of Ardemurkin, and you have the McDonald's of Keppoch. Now, after that, once again, we can assume that the rest of the members of the Council of the Isles are in on this. So who are the rest of the Council of the Isles? And the Council of Isles would actually be a good topic for a whole separate episode on itself. But we're not going to do it now. So you have both MacLeod branches. And when I say that, I mean you have the MacLeods of Lewis and you have the MacLeods of Harrison Dunvegan. And the leader of this, the two branches of this kindred, as far as the Battle of Harlaw is concerned, is Fierce Ian of Dunvegan. Or Dunvegan. Now, they have some kind of cool names in some of these, these chiefs that lead, lead the battle here. Fierce Ian of Dunvegan. And I, I know that probably I could get a better, like, yoin or something more close to that as far as pronunciation. That's just how he's pre- presented in a lot of the sources, which are not Gaelic-speaking sources, so please forgive me. So, and the next kindred that you have is, once again, just like the MacLeods are broken into two branches there, you have the MacLeans. You have the MacLeans of Duart and the MacLeans of Loch Bui. And I think because of the spelling of it, we've come to pronounce McLean's, the MacLeans of Duart as more like MacLean. But if I understand correctly, originally it's they're pronounced the same. And those two branches of that kindred, once again, th- those two, the MacLeans of Loch Bui, the MacLeans of Duart, they are two different branches of the same kindred. And they are led by Red Hector of the Battles. Now, we, we say Hector in English. I think the the Gaelic was Echen. And so, I don't know if, anyway, if Hector is the actual English translation of that, but uh, in English it would be Red Hector of the Battles. Kind of a cool name. He leads the, the, the two branches of that kindred. And then you have the McNeils of Barra. You have the McKinnons of Strath, McNeil of Gia, McQuarrie of Ulva, the Mackay of the Rins, the McNichol of Scorybreck, McEchern of Killellan, Mackay of Ugadale, McGillivray in Mull, and the McMillans of Napdale. Now, I found that from one source. Now, also, on the same page that I quoted you from the Kinship Church and Culture page earlier, the same page that has a list and let me continue on with other kindreds who may have been, who are with, well within the sphere of the Lords of the Isles, but who are not actually kin to them. Pardon me. And they might, very likely were involved in this as well. So you have the McLaughlins and the Lamonts, or Lamonts, yeah, the McNaughtons of Dundare of the Mc- and the McEwens of Otter. Now, the uh, a few other clans that are mentioned here that had a prominent part in this. The Macintoshes under Colum Begg were on the side of Lord of Isles. In fact, it was Colum Begg, the chief of the Macintoshes at this time, 
who led the whole left wing of the the of Donald's army in their in their assault on at the Battle of Harlaw. So the the Macintoshes played a prominent role in this fight. The Camerons, who were led by Donald Dew, then and that was that their involvement comes out of John McLeod's book, The Highlanders, and it's also backed by Bannerman in the, in the book I mentioned before. Also, you have in Alistair Farker Matheson's Scotland's Northwest Frontier, a forgotten British borderland. You have his mention of Gilan- the Gillanders clan from Western Ross. You have the Mathesons and the Rosses of Balnagowan. Now, it's interesting that the Rosses would be in this fight on the side of the Lord of the Isles because, you know, you're thinking this is the Earldom of Ross. Well, even though the Rosses take their name from the Earldom of Ross and their ancestors were the original um, Earls of Ross, or if you go back far enough, the Mormare is the word that they used for the, the, the Gales used for Earl. They, later, as the Scots language makes inroads, they start adopting the title Earl. But the Rosses of Balnagown descend from a younger branch of the family, a line that was recognized as more senior. And, and this, is the, this is kind of interesting. It's paralleled in another case that I'll mention here. And this is just kind of a little more insight into Scottish culture and, and how, they're, how these things kind of work. But they didn't always work like their culture said it should work. So you have the senior line of the Earls of Ross, which at one point in time was not distinguishable from the people whose surname was Ross. But then they have a younger son that breaks off, and they keep, and that branch of the family keeps the last name Ross, while the senior line, they don't have a male heir, and that's where the Leslies get involved. They, they get into the Earldom of Ross through marriage. And and I don't. It looks like Bannerman says that they they never, they never really acknowledge the Rosses never really acknowledge this, the Leslies, because they're not. Once again, they don't have a kinship, a kindred presence, in that area. They're just they married the right family and they ended up with the Earldom of Ross, and so they didn't. So the rest of the Rosses, who probably had, at least, a as good a claim to the Earldom of Ross in the Kinbay society, they don't get the Earldom. The same theme, thing happened with the Earldom of Lennox. You have the senior line of that runs out, and through marriage, the Stuarts claim the Earldom of Ross, where really, the, if you're sticking with the male line, which is the law back then, the McFarlands had at least as good a claim to assume the Earldom of Lennox as the Stuarts did. But when your family is also the rulers of Scotland, you're probably going to win that one. The McFarlands didn't get it. So the same thing. So if you're the Rosses, you don't acknowledge the Leslies. Then here come the, the men from the Isles here, and that's that's why they that's why they join up with them. And so you have the Rosses of Balnagowan on the side of the of Donald of the Isles. Okay. Now I'm not going to get to those who are on the other side yet, the participants against Donald of the Isles yet, because as Donald of the Isles assembles this massive force, and I, I just listed a lot of clans that were under his banner in this battle. He assembles this huge force that a lot of sources say was up to 10,000. Now, other people doubt whether it was that big or not, but one way or the other, this, it was a huge host and they start off 
by first coming right into the earldom of Ross and start laying waste to things. And this is may have been just to send like uh, to send the message of who really has power in this territory. I have power, and I'm just going to exercise it at will in a violent manner. And so they start pillaging and plundering their way through the earldom of Ross. And as they're approaching Inverness, which is kind of the seat of this earldom and that that area, and if you look on a map, here's a little exercise I did one time. I I went on Google Maps. I first did it on Google Earth, and then I went on Google Maps too, and I did the same thing. I dropped a pin wherever the head, like the headquarters of a clan, was where the chief resided, the the headquarters of the clan. I dropped a pin there. And it's interesting because you end up with this, if you're just looking at this, a lot of you have seen this clan map that exists, and I'm thinking of making my own products as alternatives to this because that clan map represents one certain period of time. And it also shows you the clan territory, which is great. And I've loved this clan map, and I've owned it since I was in, well, just barely out of high school. I obtained one of these. And I have just been... No, I think I got it my senior year in high school on a trip that I was on. I found it. Couldn't keep me away from it. Like I said, I have been interested in this a long time. And, I, and I've loved this map, but there are certain things the map does not show. And if you start dropping pins in the headquarters of these different clan territories, you'd see them cluster right around Inverness. And so as Donald's force nears Inverness, he's not the only powerful clan. He doesn't represent the only powerful chief in all of Scotland. In the area of Ross and farther north, there are also some very powerful clans. And they come to the, they come, they come against him at this time. And, and at the head of this group, you have Angus Du or Angus Du Mackay. He comes down from Strathnaver, which is, the Mackay territory borders the north coast of Scotland. They are way far north. And their principal strongholds are right up there near the north coast. So, and they and they controlled vast stretches of northern Scotland. And so the Mackays are pretty powerful in their own right. And they head south to meet Donal and his invading army. Now, those who join up with him, Fitzroy Maclean in his book The Highlanders say that the Frasers were one of the clans that joined up with him. Also, you have the Mackenzies the Dingwalls, and the Monroes. Now, the Monroes are disputed whether which side they took in this fight. And I'm not going to go into that in huge detail. I just want you to know they were involved in the fight. It's just an argument a little bit on whose side they were on. So, for sure, the Mackays, Frasers, Mackenzies, and Dingwalls. Join, and they still, and under the leadership of this Angus Du Mackay, or Black, Black Angus, that's how you can look at that name, Angus Du Black Angus, so they come down there and they have they meet that Donal and his forces at Dingwall and they have the Battle of Dingwall. And this is this this battle results in a victory for the men from the Isles. And Angus Dew was captured by Donal, must have left an imp- impression on Donal because when this whole thing is done. Angus Du Mackay marries Donald's daughter. So, he, he got captured, he lost the fight, but must have made quite an impression on Donald. Anyway, the Donald's, Donald's forces continue their way, pushing east through Scotland, and they're approaching 
Aberdeen. And this is, this. I mean, if you can imagine a host of 10,000 people, Aberdeen is in the, is a lowland area. And, and this is kind of interesting as the, this group from the Western Highlands and Isles, this huge group approaches Eastern Scotland, which is, which linguistically is different. And it's a little bit different culture. Now, here's how a lot of the sources portray this, this coming battle. They portray it as a conflict between two completely different cultures. It's Gaelic versus Scots. It's Highland versus Lowland. It's civilization versus barbarity. And that's, you know, the, the Lowland perception of the Highlands as a bunch of crazy people who absolutely lacked any sort of civilization. Let me actually present to you a competing view of that. The, I was in the course of working on my master's thesis. I came, came across a paper written by Alison Cathcart. Now, when I get into talking about the different sources and scholars, scholarly sources, scholars who have written on the clans and have given us actually quite a lot of really interesting things to read, I have found Alison Cathcart's works very helpful. And so if you can find any articles or books written by Alison Cathcart, then I th- and, and your, your desire is to study this subject on a more, a more academic level, I really recommend some of her stuff if you can get a hold of it. She has one book out there called um, Kinship and Clientage, and it's about where, and she acknowledges this bias. When we get into sources, it seems like the overwhelming majority of scholarly work on the clans of Scotland focuses on the Western Highlands and Isles. Like that is where it's at for the scholarly community and for the imaginative history of not non-scholars. But this is Alison Cathcart provides a nice balance to that because she, in that book, Kinship and Clientage, gets into talking a lot about the clans of the Eastern Highlands who receive less attention than the clans of the Western Highlands and Isles. And so it's, it's a really nice balance. Now, Kinship and Clientage is a textbook, and so if you're looking for it online, i am got bad news for you. It's going to be expensive, and I haven't brought myself to spend more than 100 bucks on it yet. And if I understand that industry correctly, that is the fault of the publishers, not necessarily the author, how, how expensive that is. I mean, if you're a student and your professor says you have to have this book for the class, then this is not exactly the free market, is it? And that's something I can get more into in later. I don't want to get too sidetracked on this story. But anyway, I just want to I bring her into this because she, she actually provides a compete, competing view to the fact that this is a complete clash of the cultures of Scotland. Um, in, in, on her, on, in her article that she wrote, Crisis of Identity, um, actually, let me, let me give you the real, the real title of this. It's Crisis of Identity, Clan Hatton's Response to Government Policy in the Scottish Highlands, circa 1580-1609. Okay, and on the second page of that article, she says, she mentions the third Earl of Huntley, Alexander Gordon, who was a lowland magnate, 
And by the way, this time period is later than the than the Battle of Harla, but it would only make this concept more true. And she says, at this time, there was liter- little clear-cut distinction made between Highlander and Lowlander, particularly in areas like Huntley's Aberdeenshire, where Gallic and Scots were both spoken and cultural differences minimal. Also, and then she has a footnote there that takes you down, down to the bottom of the page. She says, in 1639, which is way later... And once again, that would only make this more true. Gilbert Blackhall noted that a group of Northeast tenantry assembled to challenge a group of marauding Lochaber men. He noted that the Lowlanders were armed with Highland swords and targs and guns, thus showing the similarity in culture. He further observed that some of the Northeasters were, quote, Highland men, unquote, i.e. Gaelic speakers. Gallic remained an indigenous community language in Aberdeenshire until the 20th century. So, that may not be a completely historically accurate concept that this was a clash of cultures. And it, this, the result of this battle would determine the, which culture was culturally dominant for the future of Scotland. Now, if Donald of the Isles had won the Battle of Harlock, so there's my spoiler, he doesn't, but... But it's more complicated than that. We'll get to it in a second. But if he had one, conclusively, decisively, would there have been a stronger Gallic influence in the future of Scotland? Maybe. It's hard to tell the future. But it's just not as clear-cut as a lot of historians make it. That's all my point is there. So, Donnell and this huge army that just had a victory at the Battle of Dingwall pushes eastward. So here's the people in Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, the surrounding area around Aberdeen. This, this huge army of people from the other part of Scotland are moving toward them. And I, almost, I might also include in this whole clash of cultures concept that on the side of the, on the side of the people from Aberdeenshire, were people who were acknowledged to be Gallic speakers. I just so let me let me just go back to the Battle of Dingwall. These people that are opposing Donald of the Isles and his forces that I mentioned before, the Mackays, the Mackenzies, the Frasers, the Dingwalls, and maybe Monroes, these are Gales. These are Gallic speaking people. So this is and right there that blows the whole concept of this is Gallic versus English out of the water. The first people, the the first line of defense against Donald of the Isles. Even though they weren't necessarily defending Aberdeen, they were defending their own territory, but they were on the same side, i.e. opposing Donald of the Isles, the first people to fight him were Gales. Okay, I just want to point that out. So you have this huge army descending upon Aberdeenshire, and they're met... Well, I, I don't know if you can understand this, but the, the panic that would be str- rolling through Aberdeenshire. They've already had one huge victory, and they're moving toward your hometown. Holy cow, that'd be scary. So you, the person who comes up to the front and starts rallying people is Alexander Stewart, the Earl of Mar, who also happens to be Donald's first cousin, because I didn't tell you this at the beginning when I was talking about family trees, but Donald of the Isles' his mother's a Stewart. This, this whole thing is just one big inter-clan feud. So, Alexander Stewart, the Earl of Mar, he rallies the men of Aberdeenshire. Now, the names of the people that he rallies 
are James Scrimgour, who's the constable of Dundee and the hereditary standard bearer of Scotland. You have Sir Alexander Irvin of Drum. You have the Mall family, the Murrays, the Straitons, the Leslies, the Stirlings, the Lovells, and Sir Alexander Ogilvy of Octorhouse, the Sheriff of Angus, who is also the chief of the Ogilvy clan. And so you have those kindreds and those leaders specifically who are rallying and coming to the front to, to provide the defense of their homes against this huge army. So, who wins? These armies clash below the slopes of Benahi and place near the town of Inver- Inveruri. Hope I'm pronouncing some of these things right. Anyway, it's a fierce battle. In fact, you might have heard me mention this earlier. I didn't know if I used this this nickname for this battle. It's called the battle. This, they call it Red Harlaw because it's just the the whole landscape was stained with blood. This and huge casualties on either side. On the part of the the I guess this is a part of the podcast uh, the episode where I tell you the outcome of the battle. I don't have a lot of details. I do have. One little detail that I'll share after I get done telling you about the outcome of the battle. That's kind of a cool story. But you have the outcome of the battle involved 900 men lost on Donald's side and 600 men lost on Mars, the, the, Earl, of, the Earl of Mars' side. Now, the problem with this is, first of all, neither one of them had got a count immediately after the battle. They both... They fight until it starts to get dark. They they pull the two armies pull apart. Both of the commanders think they have lost. Donald of the Isles just he starts making his way back home. But, and he has a home to go to. Now keep in mind Alexander the Earl of Mar and all his his forces, they are home. And they think that they have lost and that they just got done because it got dark and that they'll be back again soon to finish up the job. They had no idea that under the cover of darkness, Donald and his men, they're, they're off and gone. So they start trying to re- regroup, consolidate, and reorganize what they have left of their army, sure that they're going to have to fight again, which that'd be so demoralizing after you've lost so many men. The thing with the numbers, 900 men is more than 600 men. So you're thinking, well, Donald lost. But 900 men was such a smaller percentage of his force. And 600 men was such a larger percentage of the defending force. And I don't have... I told you some people think it's that Donald's force is number 10,000, maybe less. But that's a lot more than the 1,000 to 2,000 they think that were fighting for Aberdeenshire. So both sides think they've lost. But it's funny because the storytellers on both sides later on paint this as a huge victory. Okay, so so who's, whose side really, like in the short term, if we look at this, Aberdeenshire was saved. John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, received the Earl of Ross. So, Donald, sorry, you lost. But actually, if you look at this in a, the long term, the... Earldom of Ross ends up back in MacDonald's hand by 1424. You got John, uh, the John Stuart, the Earl of Buchan, dies at the Battle of Vernouille. That's a French battle. It was in the Hundred Years' War. 
he went down and fought and he died there. And so Donald really does have the next best claim because if you look at those two claims as I explained them earlier, they're about equal in validity. So the so in the long term, I it doesn't matter if he won or lost, he ended up with the earldom that he was fighting for. I don't know that he ended up with it because of the battle. But one thing he did do was assert his dominance in the earldom of Ross. The the stewards cannot bring to bear the the amount of men in that specific geographic locality. Now, Donald of the Isles didn't actually directly con- control most of the... Like he, had, he had no base, really, in the Earldom of Ross, not much more than the Leslies did, with the exception out on the west coast of this earldom, which does stretch from the Inverness area clear across northern Scotland to the west coast, and in the vicinity of Loch Alsh, you have a branch of the McDonald's established there. So they did have like a foothold on the on the western coast part of this, but really the most of Ross, they did not have any strong presence there. And so what he did during this campaign that we just talked about is he pushed across and asserted his dominance in there. He was as powerful in the Earldom of Ross as he could enforce militarily, and we learned that he could enforce it pretty well. There was nobody in the local area that could withstand him, and he didn't lose until he got way far away from his power base. All right, so there's the Battle of Harlaw. The one detail I told you I'd talk about in a second that I haven't got to yet is a is an interesting story about the... Let me go back up and see, remember, mine, Sir Alexander Irvin of Drum. He and Hector MacLean, remember Red Hector of the Battles, Echenrua Nunca in Gaelic, they have a single combat. So while all this is going on, you have these two. Now, just going back a little bit, Red Hector MacLean, I told you Colin Begg McIntosh commanded the left wing of Donald's army. Well, Hector MacLean commanded the right wing of it, and the center, under Donal, was commanded by Fierce Ian MacLeod of Dunvegan. So Hector MacLean is, is a, he was way up there. He'd be considered at least, I don't know if you call this like a, the equivalent would be a brigade commander, a, a colonel. Anyway, he's one of the, the highest ranking people in Donal's force. He and Sir Alexander Irvin of Drum square off in single combat. So you have these two noblemen of each side. Alexander Irvin of Drum was a famous. Um, he was a famous swordsman. He was well known. He was he was supposedly big, and he was just well known as a fighter. But so was Hector. If I understand Hector correctly, I did a little more reading up on him. He was known as a swordsman specifically. And he had people from far and wide come and challenge him. In fact, there's a story in there of a guy from coming clear from Norway to f- to fight him, and he never made it home. Um, yeah, so, so you have these two men who are well-known, and they square off on each other in single combat. And I guess it was a pretty good fight. And at the end of them, both give each other mortal wounds and die. So <laughs> their fame was justified there was an equal match. I don't know. We don't have much details on the fight. We don't have any details if one of them tripped or the other one used a dirty move. I, I think in this kind of a situation, there's no such thing as a dirty move. You either win or you don't. Anyway, we don't have any details of the fight, but both of them give each other mortal, mortal wounds and they're done. 
you could almost kind of look like that look at that as a as a microcosm of the of the war or the battle in general anyway there is your story of the battle of harlaw there you have the participants you have the cause and the reason behind the the battle you have the previous battle of dingwall mentioned the i think i already said the participants on both sides you have a couple of cool stories that happen along the way with Angus Du Mackay making, even though he loses, such an impression on Donald that he marries, ends up marrying his daughter. Also, you have the single combat of Hector McLean and Alexander Irvin of Drum. What else do you have? I don't know. That's, it's just quite the story that's so red, the, the, the bloody, that they call it Red Harlaw. The possible implications and of the outcome of the battle, the, the powers that be in the north of Scotland. You get a little glimpse of that. I don't know, I just thought that the discussing the Battle of Harlaw would be a good way to illustrate and talk about the clans of Scotland at that time, 1411, major power players. We don't, I don't know where the Campbells stood in all of this, as well as some other unmentioned clans, but if you have quite a few clans mentioned within this story, each taking their own part. So I hope you've enjoyed that story and that little piece of Scottish history. Um, as I wrap this up, once again, I'll just make the the standard calls to action here. I, I would really, really like it if you would rate this podcast on iTunes. Rate it, leave a review, subscribe if you like this so that more episodes come your way. If you're on Spotify, like it. You can also leave a review there. Whether you're on Spotify using the the Podbean app or the uh, or you're using iTunes in any case I'd love it if you would um, not only just rate it or subscribe or like it or those other things leave actual comments but I'd also love it if you would share it with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast and and spread the word I'm having a really good time diving into the history and just kind of nerding out I, as far as me personally, I'm totally by myself on this. That's one reason I started the podcast. I don't have anybody locally to talk about this. I can go so far, tell some stories, but, uh, but, uh, and I do have, I do have a couple of people locally that, that have shown interest and that are actually listening to this. One of them is a Campbell. Thanks for listening, Paul. (laughs) Anyway, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this and hope you have a great day. I've got to start getting ready for work. And so I will meet up with you again in the future. Goodbye for now.